This is Old Movies for Young Stoners, the podcast that pairs weed with cult and classic films to enhance your trip through cinema history. Noir Vember is here, and the czar of noir himself, Eddie Muller, will be joining us to talk about his new book, Noir Bar, Cocktails Inspired by the World of Film Noir. So we've picked two movies from his smash book to pair with cocktails and cannabis. First, Edmund O'Brien has been poisoned, and he has just a couple of days to find out who murdered him before he drops dead in DOA from 1949. And then it's a batshit crazy ballet noir where a young ballerina is compelled to do the dance of death with her new husband, who probably just murdered his previous wife, Inspector of the Rose, from classic Hollywood screenwriter Ben Hecht in 1946. We are doing major crossfading here with Eddie, pairing the movies with cocktails while we're pairing them with weed, because nothing lasts forever, even cold November rain, here on Old Movies for Young Stoners. I was hoping for a Guns N' Roses uh, reference. Thanks, Bob. We want to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy who gave us our theme song with Christmas Funk because the season is just around the corner here. I'm Bob Calhoun, your producer and master of ceremonies. We have an amazing guest today, but before we welcome him, let, let me introduce you to my co-hosts. We've got actor, influencer, and fashionista, Felina Franklin. She's finally not on strike. Woo! Yay! I'm so excited. I need to pull out my SAG card right now. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen one before. I hope that phone is ringing off the hook for you, Felina. I hope it is. Uh, I wish. And in addition to being Felina's dad, he's an animation director and co-founder of Six Point Harness Studios, Greg Franklin. Hey, everybody. And he's your guide on the Hollywood Punk Rock Graveyard Tour. Look it up on Instagram. He is Corey Sklar. Hey, everybody. Our guest today needs no introduction, but I'm going to introduce him anyway, because that's what I do. He is the founder and president of the Film Noir Foundation, co-programmer of the Noir City Film Festival, which is now nationwide, coast to coast, and he's the host of Noir Alley on Turner Classic Movies, that's TCM to you and me, and if that wasn't enough, his book, Dark City, The Lost World of Film Noir, was recently named one of the hundred greatest film books of all time by The Hollywood Reporter, and he's got two books out this year, Noir Bar, Cocktails Inspired by the World of Film Noir, and he just published a hard-boiled children's book, Kitty Farrell and the Case of the Marshmallow Monkey. I don't know how he does it. From the dark underbelly of Alameda, California, <laughs> let's hear it for Eddie Muller. <laughs> okay, that was for a man who needs no introduction. That was a pretty good introduction. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bob. Thank you. 
But how do you do it, Eddie? I mean, to, you know, I write one book every eight years. You have two books out this year. <laughs> one of them, one of them is a thirty-two page children's book. Bob, come on. <laughs> Still going from going from pushing booze to like writing a children's book is a pretty amazing, you know. I was very very proud of that. Extremely proud of that. I'm I'm like searching the internet to find out if there's anybody else who has published a cocktail book and a kids book in the same 12 month period or in or ever <laughs> you know uh this is a pretty neat parlay i have to i have to say it's one of the great pivots in uh, literary history uh we, we we're, we're here for it eddie <laughs> I, I think so are you pivoting to children's books permanently or are we going to just see a whole line of noir children's books um well it's funny it's uh well, I hope it's more than one, that's for sure. I mean, it, the the book is, last I heard, the book is selling extremely well. I just got a uh, an email from my editor a couple of days ago saying we, we need to talk about follow-ups pretty soon, so. Hell yeah. You got to get that, that Henry Winkler making a franchise, you know, that kind of thing. That's the way to do it. Yeah, yeah. well, um, that, that would be great. I mean, now it's funny. Uh, I am not a kid anymore, so I don't qualify for, uh, you know, the young stoner designation in your title. But um, <laughs> the only one that does is me, yeah, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I used to go to bed at night and think the things that a normal red-blooded boy does. And and now I go to bed at night and I think about adventures for my cat detective so so I can continue this series of books, you know. As I I nod off imagining Kitty Farrell getting into, you know, further twisted adventures. It, it it was it was funny if I can just digress for a sec. Writing that book was because you said, you know, how do you do it? It's you know, it seems like a, a lot of work and everything, but it was so interesting that actually writing the story for that book probably all things considered, took about an hour. But negotiating the treacherous terrain of children's book publishing, uh, what you can say and what you can't say and what's permissible and what isn't and all that stuff, that, that took a long time. I mean, that took a while. And of course, um, Forrest Burdett, who illustrated the book, that, that's where all the time was spent in his illustrations. You know, that's what that's what makes the book what it is, right? I mean, we just plotted something out and made sure that, it, you know, a five-year-old could understand the story and the five-year-old's parents, who clearly that's who buys the book. So you got to satisfy them as well. So anyway, it was it was a fun experience. Do you, do you think that uh, legal cannabis in the state of California will help you come up with ideas for Kitty Farrell's next book? <laughs> <laughs> well, the the noir story there, of course, and my wife and I talk about this all the time because, you know, where we live, the only it's like every three storefronts are boarded up. And then the only thing that's thriving is the dispensary. Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, that's there's probably five or six where we live, <laughs> you know, and they're just going gangbusters and of course the noir story that i imagine is all those guys who are getting out of prison for dealing and then they see this when they come out right it's like you've oh, got yeah. to be kidding me that's great you know eddie there's a long history of uh noir for kids i'm thinking about bugsy malone of course now is there any more vintage stuff from the olden days that maybe uh was more kid tinged that you could think of you mean like noir stories where the children were the protagonists? Yeah, yeah, or yeah. Oh, yeah. There's there's children. a number of them. There's yeah. a number of them. 
And I mean, the window is the best one of all, right? From 1949. Okay. With Bobby Driscoll. It's the little boy who cried wolf. It's like a modern noir version of Little Boy Who Cried Wolf. There's also a terrific movie called Talk About a Stranger, which is also like an Aesop's fable thing about a kid who accuses his neighbor of poisoning his dog. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and if you remember Kurt Kasnar, the actor Kurt Kasnar, you remember him from, uh, I think he was on Land of the Giants or something like that. He was in some old sci-fi series from the 60s. And he he plays the the neighbor in that movie. And Billy Gray, the great Billy Gray, is the little kid. And uh, and and the kid is mean. The kid is mean and bitter and angry. And it's it's uh, not the usual kid movie. And of course, Night of the Hunter is, a, in my estimation, is a oh kid's yeah, that's movie, like a, that's right? like that's almost a, a Disney fairy tale at times. That movie, yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's a little darker than Disney is ready to go. Uh, I, I would pause there. Have you watched Have you watched Pinocchio recently? Which is the we want. I still want to do an episode with like Pinocchio, Night of the Living Dead, the which is scarier episode. Yeah, yeah. No, I I agree with you. Yeah, Pinocchio was pretty unnerving. And uh, anyway, and and there are even there are even others. There's uh, there's one called Shadow on the Wall, which is about a little girl who witnesses a a murder and then blocks it from her mind and then and you could never make this movie today it's so funny because of the what's allowable today um in this movie the little girl witnessed this this murder and then the the woman who committed the crime it's a woman played by none other than ann southern who was you know a very popular light actress she spends the rest of the movie trying to murder this little girl to keep her from to keep her memory from coming back. I mean, it's great. There's like three or four attempts to kill this kid in the movie, which is which is not something that you can really do now. I mean, yeah. when I when I started writing crime fiction, you know, twenty something years ago, I was told straight up, you cannot harm the kids. You can't do it. Like, don't do not include that in the book. And there was even there. I even had. Somebody, when I was looking for an agent, and this woman loved my book, but then the story comes to a scene where these kids discover their mother's dead body. And she stopped reading and said, I cannot represent you because I, can, I cannot deal with that. Wow. It, wow. it was weird. It was, wow. And it wasn't like a grotesque scene or anything. It was just, you know, I, I mentioned that the kids found their mother dead. Wow. And and it it just devastated this this woman, <laughs> and I'm thinking like I don't know if this is the quote unquote shark I need for an agent. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so anyway, what's she doing reading crime fiction anyway? I, mean, uh, I don't know. No, really. But the book the book got published, and the scene was left in, so that's that's okay. What's that noir where Jerry Mathers sees like a brutal fight in a house? He witnesses a crime being committed. It's another similar to the one you you were just talking about. And Jerry, young Jerry Mathers yeah. is in a surprising amount of noirs because he's in the Hitchcock movie too. The Beaver, uh, yeah. yeah. And and I I know the movie you're talking about, but I'll be darned if I can remember yeah, the title I right now. I I keep wondering like when's Eddie gonna have Jerry Mathers on because you know. <laughs> uh, I, it's like all Jerry, I know is Eddie Haskell would have been great in DOA. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> Listen, Jack, you've been poisoned. You know, Tim and yeah. Chester could hang out. And yeah, 
He got poison on account of he drank a glowing liquid. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> on account. So who, so who amongst you had not, so do you guys like, you watch the movie before you do the show, yeah, right? Well, let's so let's how, save that for when we talk about the movies. I'm oh, okay, gonna, okay, okay. I'm going to get to that. All right, all right. Quick. I'm sorry. I'm trying to st- I'm trying to produce your show for you, Bob. I'm I sorry. know, I know. <laughs> but no, it's it's, it's it's mostly first-time viewings for me and Felina here. Yeah. yeah. Okay. A lot well, of times. So Greg has subjected Felina to several of these movies, too. So she's... She, yeah. Look, yes. she's all, she's yeah. all, yeah, she's so tortured. Um, <laughs> hey, you know, before we get into How our first... Did, Felina, did we ever watch The Honeymoon Killers? Speaking of uh, brutal movies. That sounds familiar, but I don't know. I don't remember. You would have remembered. You would have remembered. You showed uh, Honeymoon Killers in seconds. Yes. And at the Castro and me and Rosie walking back to the car. And I always kind of get a little lost in those triangles, you know, in San Francisco. Like, yeah. oh, where is it? That was like the scariest walk home from a movie ever <laughs> after watching those two movies back to back. Yeah, I that hate, was uh, if that agent saw that movie. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. That that was kind of a uh, an insane Double bill. I have I have these uh, regular patrons of the Noir City Festival, and older couple, really really lovely people, the Howies, Fred and Barbara Howie. Th- this will give you an idea how long I've been doing this. When I first met them, they were coming to the festival with their daughter, Lauren, who was like thirteen years old, and mm. it was like something they could do together as a family. And now Lauren is 30 and she's and she's like booking in L.A. and is inviting me to come down there and do stuff in Los Angeles. It's like I I have witnessed kids grow up to adulthood at my festival. The Howies, uh, they like the older films. And so after that double bill of Honeymoon Killers and Seconds, Barbara said, Eddie, we, we we love you, but don't. Don't ever do that again. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of be remiss if we go to movie without mentioning uh, the TCM cruise, which we were just both on, and you had lines wrapping around the Disney magic to sign uh, the Noir Bar book and other books, and you were just like, like I'm used to seeing you at Noir City in Oak, now in Oakland, previously in San Francisco, and you're definitely a star there but people are a little more blase about it or they like the Howies have been going to the festival for years. They're happy to see you, but it's more personal where here you were like a TV star. You were definitely, it was definitely another level of celebrity there. (laughs) Yes, it was. uh, I, I concur with your assessment. It's different in the Bay area. I mean, because the Bay, you know, it's my home and people know me. People have been coming to the festival. They know me. It's like, Hey Eddie, how's it going? You know, uh, on the cruise, it's weird because people do think it's weird. I mean, people don't completely understand how television works. So there are people who are like, they don't quite get that. I, when I do Noir Alley, I do like 15 of them at a time. And so people mm-hmm. are always like, don't, don't you have to be shooting the show now? <laughs> that's so cute. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. Right. Uh, any good memories from the cruise? Yes, uh, the cru- the cruise was fantastic. I, I wish uh, we, uh, you and Rosie and I, had had more time to just hang out. But, man, they actually make me work on the cruise, you know? Yes, there were a lot of really wonderful... All the guests were great. I hope you 
felt that way. Some sometimes it's a it can be a little tense behind the scenes if you have a mm. a guest that's like a little difficult to handle, you know. We, name we names, certainly. Just yeah, yeah. Come on, <laughs> dox them. No, it's it's. I, I better not. I better not. But I can uh, make a couple guesses though. But you know, we we've had, and it's funny because it's usually the younger guests. Oh, right. Uh, relatively speaking, I, I use younger. Right. You know, in like like terms. like Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> no, Ernest Borgnine. Ernest Borgnine is the greatest. Was the greatest guy ever. I mean, he was uh, the, he was yeah. just the best guest imaginable. Anyway, but but you just you 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 sort of never know with people. You know, they bring an entourage and because they want to feel mm. protected, and then sometimes what's going on within the entourage can throw things out of whack. Ah. Uh. You know, and and it's just like, oh, this mm-hmm. is totally unnecessary. You know, if they just weren't quite as handled, things might work a little better. But this time it was just it was exceptional, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm very happy that um, if you got to see Ernest Dickerson, he was he was so much fun. And that I was did. cool for me because Ernest and I met at a at the classic film festival in Hollywood a few years ago, and we introduced uh, the third man together and he was just so fantastic his knowledge of movies is so extraordinary and for people who don't know Ernest Dickerson is a cinematographer turned director he's he's photographed Mm -hmm. like 13 or 14 of Spike Lee's films uh black guy you know and he's not the typical TCM guest that you would expect you know he's he's 70 year old African-American with dreads and and so you know there's a certain TCM person who is not expecting that guy <laughs> to right. be the movie expert about films from the 30s and 40s and things. And so th- that's what I so love. It's like a little icing on the cake with Ernest. Not only is he yeah. does he know everything, it's just unexpected. And it at least for certain people who you know they don't they don't get that movie movie fans movie makers come in all varieties you know so it's uh that was just choice because because Ernest we'd be talking and and he'd talk about like his love of 2001 a space odyssey and then the next thing he he's talking about uh you know making uh Tupac Shakur's first film and mm-hmm. and people are like Who's Tupac Shakur? I just I just know that there are people in that audience that are like, who's he talking about? Who, you know, I, I was pleasantly surprised on this cruise by the diversity of the people going on the cruise. Uh, there were a lot of African American women on the cruise, so I was when I first thought, oh, they're showing do the right thing, and I wanted to see it because I I was expecting just all these older white people. People like my parents' age coming out of it going, TCM's too woke and being all angry about it. But it was a <laughs> it was a good crowd for that. Yeah. And yeah. what was funny is I I got to do the right thing a little bit early. And we had talked earlier. I had met you in um that fancy restaurant on the ship, uh Paolo. Yeah. And you wanted to talk about this uh podcast. So I I got to do the right thing early, and there's these bars on the deck below it that are like the after hours bars. So I thought maybe Eddie's down there because you had just done a thing with all the TCM hosts. And so I go looking for you and I find you in this bar keys and I'm like, oh, there's Eddie. And I start to walk up to you to bug you. But I see that you're talking to Kim Novak and I froze and I'm like, you know, now's not a good time. 
I went back upstairs to the movie and then Elliot Gould sat in front of me for do the right thing. And he kind of grumbled through it. I wished I could hear him what he's saying oh, about man. the movie. Oh, like, I really, I wish I had a bionic ear or had him wiretapped or something. But, so it was all great. I mean, you, you miss yeah. out on meeting Kim Novak, but there's Elliot Gould and that's how the cruise is. Well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have walked away, Bob, because Kim is completely <laughs> wonderful and approachable and we've become pretty good friends and she's, She's just a regular person, you know. Oh, sure. Like it's, everybody else. Amazing. But what I love about these people is that being a star is their profession. And and it's interesting to see them turn it on like a yeah. light switch, you know. Mm. It's just like as soon as there's a public there and they can totally modulate it. Like how how much star power am I supposed to put out right now? Not not everyone is built for that kind of like you know performance. That, that's too. very it's, very very true. People are some people are just born with it, and some people just can't handle it at all. So it yeah. is it is kind of special and magical when you see people that are good at it. You know, like okay, here's my audience. Here's what what I'm dealing with here. Here's the stories I need to tell. It's pretty cool. Yep, it's wonderful to meet a big star who is not vain. It's 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 fabulous. Anyway, I'll tell you very quickly just to, to finish the cruise thing. My favorite story from the cruise. <laughs> this is fantastic. I don't I don't think I mentioned this to you, Bob. So the very last thing we did on the cruise was the last night I showed the long goodbye and introduced it with Elliot Gould. Now I don't know how many of you have seen the long goodbye. Yeah, it's a very controversial in its time adaptation of uh, Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe detective novel. And anyway, I I think Elliot really appreciated that I admitted uh, when we started discussing it that when I saw it the first time, I hated it. I just hated the movie because it was not my Philip Marlowe. You know, it was like some Mm. revisionist take on the character, which I really didn't appreciate. And then over the years, I keep returning to the movie and now I consider it to be like Altman's greatest film. It's just so spectacularly made. And it, and it's so many clever ideas in there. And I didn't realize just how significant Elliot Gould, that performance is him. Because he basically said that Altman was telling him, just do what you do, and I'll just tell you if it's not working. So, so much of the stuff that happens in the film that Marlowe does is Elliot Gould kind of improvising. And I mentioned <clears throat> at one point, loved the soundtrack to that film because not only does uh, it's John Williams before he did Star Wars and Jaws and all that stuff, and it's like a jazzier thing. And he writes this theme, the Long Goodbye theme, that is that appears throughout the movie everywhere. Like it's it's the music in the supermarket. It's coming from the radio. It's you know it's on the jukebox in the bar. It's it's ubiquitous in the film. We were talking about the end of the film, and Elliot Gould said, you know, he carries this harmonica, this little toy harmonica through the movie. And at the end of the movie, as he's walking down the road and he he passes uh, Nina Van Palant, the, the femme fatale of the piece, he plays this little tune. He puts this harmonica in his mouth and plays this little tune, which segues into the final song in the movie, the very ironic final song in the movie. And and he had the harmonica in his pocket. He said he's been carrying it all these years, you know. It's like a little talisman or something. So he takes it out and he plays this little tune. He said, there you go, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we came off stage and I said, boy, that was great. 
you know that i hope you had fun because that that was really terrific and i'll be damned he gave me the harmonica oh my god God. that's that's the one oh my god it's oh. the one. <laughs> That's amazing. Holy How wow. cool is that? That's sick. <laughs> yeah. wow. And it was it was really funny because he was talking to Ben. He and Ben Mankiewicz have become very good friends, and he was talking to Ben. I love this. And Elliot said, "So uh, I have several things to do." And Ben is like, "Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna have like an hour long conversation with me." And he goes, "Oh, okay." And he goes, "And then you're gonna introduce the long goodbye with Eddie." And he goes, oh, oh, I'm nervous. <laughs> and, and, and Ben goes, why? He goes, well, Eddie's an expert. <laughs> <laughs> you were in the movie. That, that, that feud, he's just that, that program you're doing with Ben Mankiewicz, uh, program wrestling parlance for feud. Uh, that's just got to be getting hotter right now. I, I, he's going to hit you with a steel chair soon. On you know. <laughs> Ben Mankiewicz, what's he doing here on Noir Alley? He's got the steel chair. Oh, no. Yeah, it's well, we'll see. I mean, these days, yeah. you know, the TCM, it's we we would love to do as much stuff together as we possibly can. Yeah. I, I mean, I've I've never got to host anything with Jacqueline Stewart. I've never hosted anything with Dave Carter. You know, I've I've done stuff with Ben and with Alicia, but I re- we really have great chemistry, and we all mm-hmm. very much, despite the the you know the idiotic feud that Ben and I have developed, <laughs> uh, we we love doing stuff together, and it's just tough right now because of all yeah. the cutbacks and everything, and sure. the, everything's being cut very close to the bone. You probably noticed if you've seen Noir Alley lately that I'm I'm actually doing the show in a real bar. Right. Yes. The yes, the set, really the 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 whatever that set was that I totally loved, that set is gone. Oh. You know, oh, um, that that was, Icon- that was iconic set. Yeah, well, <laughs> Well, they, what did they do? Have a yard sale or something? Like I, uh, I, I actually don't know where the set went, and it's kind of if they just junked it, it's it's silly because hell, we oh, could we could have sold it off. You sure could have. You have those. those, you know, those, those Warner Brothers Discovery needs some money. We could we could sell the furniture. You know, we totally. could sell yes those, those TCM people buy lamp. anything. Those lamps. Yeah, <laughs> they they deleted that with Batgirl over there. Eddie Eddie, uh, what uh, what um, if us location nerds? Are you able to reveal what the bar is that you filmed? Yeah, I, part of the deal is I say it every time I oh, come okay. on the air. I, <laughs> oh, yeah, it is. It's bar bar three fifty five in Oakland, California. Oh, of it's course, on, it's oh. on Nineteenth Street. Oh. It's right by the bar. I used to DJ there. I know that place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> and it was it's it's uh, you know once again I have to thank my wife because she. She found it, you know, pre-COVID, just as a place for us to go and have cocktails and stuff. Oh, good and for it, them. I'm glad they're getting that shine. I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, Travis and Patrick, the two <laughs> yeah. owners of the bar, they're really great guys. And uh, you know, we went looking for a place, and that was the first place that I suggested. And uh, Jacob, one of the producers at TCM, came out to just look at all these places, and we went there and had a couple of drinks, and then like went down the street to another place, and it was like. Do you really want to keep looking, or are we good? <laughs> it's like, no, we're we're good, we're good. I'm surprised so, he didn't film it at the Fisherman across from the ferry building. That's yeah, all. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got some some dirt on the Fisherman. Oh, we're you're gonna do, get to man. that before we get to our first film. I have to say, uh, I want to give a shout out to 
my friends on the TCM cruise, in case they're listening, uh, uh, Philip and Anthony, who we met, Rosie and I met on the very first TCM cruise with Ernest Borgnine, and they are our cruise friends, and they're from Massachusetts. And we also met a wonderful couple, uh, Gabriel and Gabby. So they're Gabby and Gabby. They're from San Diego. And they are going to come up to Noir City in Oakland. They go to Noir City in L.A. and Oakland. So they're great. And our, our friends Barb and Darren, uh, Greg's cousin Darren, were also on the cruise. It was a very, very fun cruise. But also, Rosie, we finally have a website. My wife, Rosie, made the website at oldmoviesforyoungstoners.com. After over a year, we've got our own URL and everything. And, you know, Felina needs work. She's not on strike with SAG anymore. So if you're listening. <laughs> She's a great actor. She's a great voiceover artist. So get a hold of us through the website at oldmoviesforyoungstoners at gmail.com. I'll forward it to Felina. She will be in your commercial. She'll be in, you know, I mean, all the pharmaceutical companies advertising on MeTV if you want her to fall <laughs> off a pier or something for Sky Rizzy. I'll you do know, it. women are always falling off of Sounds things. Sounds like in Bob is gunning for your new agent role. You know, yeah. So, I, yeah. Listen, <laughs> I need a new agent. Bob, you're hired. <laughs> okay. Can you do can you do the super can you do the super fast disclaimer voice at the end of commercials? <laughs> I, I heard mean, one the other day on the radio that went on for like two minutes and it was so fast it was just oh, unintelligible. Man. The Ozempic one is goes on forever <laughs> may cause oh nausea vomiting insanity suicide <laughs> if you feel <laughs> suicidal feelings while you take this drug please talk to your doctor <laughs> please please leave me all your money <laughs> give it to me straight doctor well a number of things are involved the systemic condition of the individual the amount consumed exertion yes you won't feel too badly for a while then it will happen suddenly a day two days a week at the most. A day? Two days? There's nothing that can be done now. If it had been caught in time, your stomach could have been washed out. But you've had it in you for some time now. For at least 12 hours, haven't you, Bigelow? I don't know. You don't know? No. Don't you know how you got it? No. This is no accident. Somebody knew how to handle that stuff. That wax is tasteless and odorless. And the amount of alcohol in your body, you must have got it in liquor. I was drinking last night. Arrange for your admission to the hospital immediately. Of course, I'll have to notify the police. This is a case for homicide. Homicide? I don't think you fully understand, Bigelow. You've been murdered. Two decades before he directed our first film, Rudolph Matei laid the groundwork for film noir with his use of light and shadow as the cinematographer of Danish director Carl Theodore Dreyer's undisputed masterpiece, The Passion of Joan of Arc in 1928, and again with Dreyer's Vampire in 1932, which we covered a year ago in our Halloween Monsters episode. Matei made the jump to director in 1947 and made this essential noir two years later. In this movie, noir regular, Edmund O'Brien is Frank Bigelow, just a regular certified public accountant who gets roofied with luminescent poison on a trip to San Francisco. With only two days to find out who murdered him and why, his frantic quest takes him from the seedy wharf bars of San Francisco, back before they cleaned it all up for the APEC conference, to the always <laughs> atmospheric Bradbury building in Los Angeles. He uncovers Byzantine plots within plots and is roughed up by thugs along the way to his inevitable fate of being dead on arrival in DOA from United Artists in 1949. That was damn good, Bob. <laughs> <laughs>
That was damn good. good. Thank you. Uh, tell us a little bit about this movie, Eddie. And I, and I love that you threw in the that Mate and his uh, work with Carl Dreyer and the Passion of Joan of Arc, which was one of my on my list of the ten greatest movies ever made. I got to vote in that sight and sound poll. Oh, nice! And the Passion of Joan of Arc is uh, is definitely on my list. Did I, it, I still, it made it right. It made it to the oh, big one hundred. Yes, yes. And Maria Falconetti's performance, I still think, is the single greatest performance in the history of motion pictures. So there you go. But now we're talking about DOA. So is it more is this movie harder to follow than The Big Sleep? That's the that's number <laughs> one. no. <laughs> um, I'll put it in a no. Well, you know what? Maybe the question is, when you look at the list of of the most iconic noirs, DOA has got to be in the mix, right, somewhere? But And where would it be and, and why? Well, here's the thing that's weird. DOA has arguably the greatest premise of any noir film, right? A guy is murdered by a slow-acting poison, and he has to solve his own murder before the time runs out. Incredible premise for a story. The thing that's weird about the movie is that you're not quite sure of the tone because at times the movie seems very jokey and it doesn't seem very serious. But then at the end, it's like the the surprise. Sorry, spoilers for people who haven't seen it. The big surprise of the movie is that there's there's no escape hatch. You know, you keep thinking that the antidote is going to somewhere and that Bigelow is going to get out of it. And in fact, he, he does not. And uh, so it makes it like a profoundly dark movie. But at the same time, there's so much goofy stuff going on in the film <laughs> that I, uh, you know, I described it as like a live action Roadrunner cartoon at some points because, you know, Edmund O'Brien is just, he's hysterical the way he runs into frame and zips out. You know, I think I, I wrote about it some point saying that you you can almost see like the cartoon motion lines, you know, or, <laughs> yeah. or when he runs in and like stops and it's like screech, you know, <laughs> and his and his hair, his pompadours flopping around, you know, and he's just sweating. It's, well, uh, and that's there's this use of a slide whistle to, I guess, it indicate his. Direction. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, I, well, and I mean, I've never, I, I've never seen that in a in a in a a real movie. It starts out like that. It's like, <laughs> yes. Well, but was it yeah. was that supposed to be the the sound of like the the cable car or something? Right? Is or I don't know. Or, it was, no, it was him. Song. It was him when he sees this. That's he what it into was. This hotel like, in San Francisco. Yeah, there's got to yeah. be an explanation for this. It's a wolf whistle. whistle. Right this way, Mr. Baker. Yeah, yeah. So, Felina, as as the one woman on the panel, how do you feel about the wolf whistle use there? Uh... I'm fine with it. (laughs) But I mean that—that's—that's where my whole idea that it's a cartoon. That's kind of where it begins because you almost see his eyes bug out. You know, when you hear the the sound effect, it's like the the wolf in a in a Bugs Bunny cartoon or something. You know? Yes. It's very Tex Avery. I'm I'm wondering if audiences in 1949 were cracking up. You know what I mean during the wolf whistle? Like like how were they handled? Were they like going, "What is this?" Were they going, "Oh," you know? I wonder. I, I, that's I'm a good question. Yeah, of course, I don't don't know the answer to it. I one one thing that I do uh, believe is true of audiences at that time that later audiences 
I don't like it when they cop a condescending attitude towards earlier audiences thinking oh, yeah. like, oh, this was so silly. And can you believe anybody took it seriously? It's like, what makes right. you think they did? You know, I right. mean, if if it's funny, it's funny, you know, and, and an audience would either laugh at it or not or say that was a stupid idea or they'd they'd find it humorous. But most times in, in noir films, the humor that's built into the films is clearly there for a purpose. And the audiences at the time understood it. You know, they mm -hmm. they were going along with the film. It wasn't. Uh, you know, they weren't yes. that naive. Audiences at that time were not that naive. I mean, a right. lot of stuff that we now read into the films um, may have been there, but it just wasn't common. Whenever I talk about Gilda, I always say, you know, this is really the two guys are having the relationship. I mean, that's a thing that is mm -hmm. pretty abundantly clear to me watching the movie. but that would not have been abundantly clear to an audience in 1946. That just was not. And, and even if they suspected it, nobody's going to say, you know, I think those two guys were actually together in the movie and that she was coming between them. You know, N nobody in 1946 is going to say that, but trust me, it's there. <laughs> it is right. clearly there in the movie. My mom, you know, she's not really here to talk about what she thought in the 40s and 50s when she saw these movies or watched these movies, but she seemed very in tune to who was queer in Hollywood and who wasn't because it was mostly like guys she used to like, like Farley Granger and Montgomery Clift. And she's like, she was always like such a waste. He's He was gay. <laughs> she was just kind of mad about what a waste. it. That, that yeah. happened, you know, that whole like uh, straight women lusting after perfect looking gay men. That goes back a few decades. It's not just a recent phenomenon, folks. I'm sorry. Yeah, it is it is interesting. It kind of, you know, that always intrigues me. Like <laughs> like the the cult of Liberace, like all the women who were totally in the Liberace. <laughs> and it was like, hmm, okay, that's interesting. My grandmother thought Elvis was gay, but Liberace was untouchable. No, he's just still looking for his <laughs> his his perfect romance. He's he's waiting for the right woman to come and yeah, it's just incredible. You started to ask this Eddie of uh, my co-host before, so let's get to it. Uh, first, Felina, have you seen this before? And then we'll get Corey's reactions, maybe as a newbie DOA watcher. No, I had never seen this before, but I loved it. I had so much fun. I It took me a second to get into it because, frankly, men talking is just not my favorite thing to watch. <laughs> and it's kind of boring to me. But then we got into the jazz club, and that's when I was really in it. And then, oh my God, as soon as... They flipped the switch and the poison was glowing. I, that cracked me the hell up. I loved that so much. And I was like, that would be so actually kind of sick if they had that in like, in doctor's we offices? need this. <laughs> no, but if they had that at like raves, like oh, I yeah. feel like oh. that would be. <laughs> Luminous poisoning. Just, yes. <laughs> well, of course, so it's always amused. It, uh, it always amused me watching that film that like they don't say it, but it's clear that he has peed. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. That's, yeah. That that's yes. what they're looking at is his radioactive oh, his urine. You know. Yeah, yes. And, wow. And it's just amazing <laughs> so that like no mention is made of this, but the guy is clearly holding a test tube of smoking hot. <laughs> right that, that is glowing like 
you know, an atomic test on some South Pacific <laughs> atoll, you know? That's... I thought it was blood. I was like, wouldn't his whole body be glowing if his blood was glowing? No, I think it's, come on, he goes in. <laughs> it's it's a, you don't You don't see them extracting blood from his arm. He, he goes in and he pees. Come on. <laughs> I, I love how easy it was to see a doctor back in 1949. And I, you know, he oh, yeah. just like really? Kaiser would tell him, oh, we could see you in three weeks. And oh, he, he saw like four doctors in that one visit. Like yeah. and they were all screaming at him. He's like, I didn't do nothing. What are you mad at yeah. me for? Bob, I think I think you've just come up with the perfect modern day remake. And you know they have remade DOA. <laughs> the US healthcare system the, version of DOA. And and now there's a new one. Yeah. Right? There's the new one with John Doe uh from X. John Doe oh, there's plays a new Frank one. Bigelow oh. in the in the new and it's in black and white. Mm. And I hate to say this, I have a link to it that uh the producers just sent me the other day and I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but um, wow. I'll be very curious to see how they play it. I, I watched the first minute of it. It's one of these films that it, it, it sort of takes place in an uh, indeterminate time period, it seems to me, so far. Because the, the cars seem very old, but it doesn't look like they're going too far. You know, it was like when Tim Burton did that the first Batman movie. It's like, when is this actually set? I can't quite tell, you know, because... Mm -hmm. Uh, none of the period stuff really matched. Anyway, but Bob, your idea, this is it. Frank Bigelow, you you do DOA, and then he goes to see a doctor, and then he just dies waiting to see a doctor. In <laughs> just the in the room. ER. Just he's in the ER forever. Um, yeah. Corey, um, let's get back to the fisherman. You seem very intrigued by the fisherman. Uh, which oh, is well, I'm in, I'm, I just love the, this has got to be one of the best San Francisco movies I've ever seen because it seems geographically accurate. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I love the, the settings and, and him running away. I think he runs out of the, the, the mint on Fifth and Market or something at one point and runs down the street. And you can see the street signs where he's at. He's at Jones in Sacramento and, and, and like it's, it's very cool. So the fisherman was just something that caught my eye. But as silly as some of the choices are, as we were saying, that, that make it funny. It's a funny movie. It's that's it's all the stylistic choices aren't silly. Like Helena said, the jazz club scene, which is so frenetic and energetic and really jazzes you up when you watch it. Uh, it's 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 another amazing, interesting stylistic choice. So yeah, this is my first time seeing it. I was like watching a Wile E. Coyote, Coyote movie or cartoon, it keeps you what's going to happen, what's, what's going to happen next the whole time. So I, I loved it. And it is so trope. It has all the noir tropes, every single one you could ever think of. But I don't know. It's done so clever in such a funny, energetic, frenetic way that it just kind of keeps you in, uh, engaged the whole time. I can't tell you what the hell the bill of sale was about or... What was going all on? All I did was notarize a bill of sale. That's like, all I why, did. Why? Why did they add that? Why did they add all that Michigas about? And then you sold you sold it to him so you could buy it back from him. I'm like, what are you talking about? But yeah. and, and the name and the names just fly out at you. You know, yeah. Majak. Who's like, Majak? Like, like, who went to see Raymond this guy, Rakubian? You know? His name is not George Reynolds. It's Raymond Rakubian. Rakubian. Major. Yeah, they were, <laughs> when the when the big when the big reveal at the end of who the guy in the suit in the jazz club is that switched the the drink with the poison drink was I I didn't know who I didn't know was that supposed to be like a big shocking reveal I don't know I was like wait who's that I don't know I was shocked you were did you know who it was but, I um, did it was the guy 
Okay, thank you. All right, I was gonna. Do... However, let's, let's just uh, let's 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 leave something uh, mysterious oh, okay. here. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. We but, already but... know the we already know the son of a bitch dies at the end, but yeah. Uh... <laughs> one of the one of the henchmen's name is Chester. Now that guy kind of steals a lot of the movie. I feel like what is no, that guy? Man. What is Bigelow that guy? Bigelow and me and baby makes three. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that guy is eating it, chewing up the scene. Bigelow doesn't like it in the belly. Yeah, can't tell you in the bellies. That guy's incredible. I, I loved his performance. He wanted to get tough with Chester. He don't know Chester. Okay, so Corey, this blows my mind. You're you're obviously uh, younger. And not uh, aware of Neville Brand as an no, actor. I don't. I'm not. No. Yeah, Neville no. Brand was the, I believe, the fourth most decorated soldier of World War II. Wow. And then, and then, um, the first most, Audie Murphy, also became a movie actor. He became a big star, whereas Neville Brand pretty much played roles just like this. Right. I mean, he was a thug and a heavy. Uh, he was just in a movie I showed last week on Noir Alley, Cry Terror. He's a benzedrine-addicted rapist in that movie, which is if you're the fourth most decorated soldier of World War II. See what you have to look forward to in your career? <laughs> you get to play Benny-addicted rapists on screen. <laughs> but but he also uh, was in a, a great um, Western when I was growing up called Laredo. Bob, do you remember Laredo? Laredo, it's a TV series, right? Yeah, yeah. That's one. Rosie and I watch lots of 50s westerns, but we haven't gotten to Laredo yet. Oh, Laredo is great because it has it has uh, Peter Brown is like the good looking gunslinger. And then the two other guys are Neville Brand and William Smith. And, you know, William Smith is one of the biggest badasses in the history of Hollywood. And uh, anyway, I, I, did, I dug that show when I was a kid. It was like the wild, wild west and, you know high chaparral and bonanza it's amazing how many western tv series there were <laughs> back in the day yeah we're seeing the unraveling of the superhero movies now and it's like it happened with westerns in the 50s and 60s there was nothing but cowboys on tv spoofed in cartoons greg knows this anytime a oh, yeah. tv's turned on in a cartoon in the 50s it's cowboys chasing each other with smoking guns so i mean and everybody was the the poor husband was always so bored by them, you know, that he would uh, do the thing where he the cartoon thing where he'd shrug and, uh, you know, shoot himself in the head. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, well, s s no, sorry. I just want to say um, as far as DOA goes, this I, I've seen it before a few times, but I've, I think I, this was the first noir that I became aware of because of. There was a show on Nick at Night called um, Mad Movies, where they would take a film, usually a public domain film like uh, like DOA, and they would redub it with improv comedians. And the the gist of the show was that they were playing off of this riff that Edmund O'Brien resembled Ricky Ricardo, and and so they they created a new storyline. Where, uh, you know, the scene where Edmund O'Brien busts into the, the doctor's office, he's wrestling the nurses, but they they redubbed it with I'm looking for Lucy, you know, <laughs> and it was it was so stupid. But that's how I was like, OK, there's this movie DOA out there that actually looks entertaining if we take away all this dumb improv and 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 to to, to thread the needle on it, that 
One of those actors was Felina's first improv teacher, Kent Scove. Kent Scove? No! Uh, yes, wow. he was he was he was in the cast of Midnight Movies. I think he created the show. Mad Mad just, Movies. I remember the theme yeah. song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh back to the fisherman, you know, because the fisherman's this crazy jazz bar, and all the jazz musicians look like they're just wigged out on lots of coke. They're playing they're playing as fast as Edmund O'Brien is running up and down Market Street in this movie. <laughs> it's it's a scene like Greg said, it drew me into noir. It was this was one of the first movies I saw when I became after I became aware of noir because of a community college in Redwood City uh, film appreciation class that showed double indemnity and explained to me what this thing called film noir was when I was like 19. And then this was on TV. But anyway, the fisherman like that scene made me into noir. And I think it did for a lot of cool. people like this is this is a cool thing you should be into. But um, the fisherman did not exist. I'm sorry, Corey uh. and Greg. But there was a bar, you know, it was made up for the movie. The sign was a prop, but there was a bar at 111 Embarcadero, which isn't there anymore. It's been torn down. It's Justin Herman Plaza and the big Hyatt Hotel and everything now. But the bar was Jack's Waterfront Hangout. Herb Kane listed it as one of the people, place, people, things and places he missed in San Francisco in a March 1991 column. And he noted Jack's goofy pianist who played blindfolded and wearing boxing gloves the 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 piano player and often mc of goings on at uh, jack's waterfront hangout was lee hample who was murdered by his roommate in 1961 can always count on bob to come up with these good tie-ins <laughs> yeah, yeah. okay so so the roommate uh let's see what's the guy's name his name was lionel pennington and he beat Hample up so badly that Hample had a punctured lung and died. Uh, the the roommate tried to say that Hample died. You know, it was an accident, but the autopsy revealed the beating was way too severe. And he kept changing his story. So here we go. I'll read from the Chronicle article about it. He, uh, the murderer, told police that he and Hample had been fighting over the fact that the musician was unemployed. He said he <laughs> knocked his roommate down and then accidentally fell on him. The shaken suspect told reporters that he had put Hample to bed after the fracas, had watched a little television for a while and gone to sleep before he returned to the bedroom to see how the musician was getting along. He found Hample dead. So, I mean, people have been hating their roommates in San Francisco, killing their roommates, <laughs> uh, out of work musician, yeah. you know, roommates not paying his rent. It's a story as old as the city. It goes back <laughs> to 1851. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the locations, like you said, it, it, the fisherman was so amazing. And then they go to mm -hmm. LA. Is this the maybe maybe one of the first appearances of the Bradbury building in, in movies? Um, there were several right around the same, yeah. same time. I mean, there's uh, the movie Shockproof, which was made the same year as DOA. Okay. Has, has a, the lead character's office is actually in the Bradbury building. And I know um, M, Joseph Losey's version of right. M, the whole third act of that takes place in the Bradbury building. That's where the, the child murderer is hiding out and the, all the underworld guys are trying to get him in, that, in the building. And that is the Bradbury building. That's so so cool. it, it was used uh, in a number of things over the years. You know, obviously it's in Blade Runner. You can see it in Blade Runner. Anyway, it's, uh, 
And in that scene in The Fisherman, you know, the, the hopped up Hepcat is Hugh O'Brien is playing that guy. Um, if you remember, Hugh O'Brien was a big actor in the 60s and 70s, TV guy mostly. But he, he's the guy spewing all the beatnik lingo, oh. you know. Dig it, daddy. He's putting it down, baby. He's so cool. The audience is going absolutely crazy in this jazz club there i've oh, never man. seen i've Fuck been to wild. i've been to a lot of punk shows i don't never seen anyone go like this <laughs> give me another blast Leo. and i love how everyone's just losing their shit and then the bartender's like yeah i don't really like this music just between you and me i don't get it either but i gotta listen to it everyone i've ever known to work at a punk bar everyone i've ever known to work at a tiki bar they're like yo this i, I hate this stuff i like guy lombardo so realistic but, i like guy lombardo he says that's so funny this movie's this movie's very funny the, the, yeah uh so before we get on to our weed and booze pairings let's talk a little bit about paula uh felina your thoughts on paula oh my god poor girl Poor girl, I love her. She's sad. I feel sad for her. <laughs> I I don't know what. I mean, she is such a doormat. <laughs> but I mean, I think yeah. that I think the movie is set up because you know back then she couldn't have a checking account unless she was married. So we have to we have to give her a little right. bit of you know like there's a little more desperation there than just she needs a man. She really needs a man to do a lot of things in life. She's got to be like 30, 32 or so, or maybe 28. It's hard to tell. But I think Edmund O'Brien realizes he's led her on for a while. He has to marry her. She's cool enough. But he goes to have his wild fuck party weekend before he <laughs> finally pops the question and settles down. And then he he dies. But um, yeah. but yeah, I, I just, Paula, she's there. She's She goes to LA. She's just, I don't know. So just- Well, and she also gives him permission to you know there's nothing you can do that i wouldn't forgive you for oh, yeah you know which is pretty wild it is funny to to i've i've read some critiques of this movie where they say you know it's it's all about uh his his being guilty about sowing his wild oats you know that he mm -hmm. his, his days as a single man are running down and so he goes and you know basically cuts loose in San Francisco, and then pays the ultimate price because you know yeah. he's murdered by having a good time in this bar and thinking about having uh you know doing it with this woman that he beats. <laughs> he doesn't yeah. go through with it. No, he no, doesn't. But it's, but, but it's enough. Well, that you're, he kind of gets distracted. He kind of gets distracted. He, he does yeah. kind of get distracted. That's true. Now, can we make a '50s Atomic Scare movie where he does have sex with the woman from the bar, but he's irradiated, so his radioactive sperm produces like the Amazing Colossal Child or something? No, Bob, you're just you're just coming up with all the ideas today. You're coming up with all the ideas. Well, there are a lot, also a lot of people who felt that that whole scene when he emerges from the doctor's office onto Market Street and he like looks into the sun and there's this blinding sun and everything. A lot of people interpret that as some kind of atomic age fear of of sudden obliteration, like you can just be wiped out immediately, long distance. You know, there are. I have read many uh, interpretations of the film that say that's what was behind the paranoia was the idea that, and, and they make a lot out of the fact that it's irradiated, you know, so he's consuming mm. the, the, the thing that is involved in producing the weapons that can wipe us all out 
I mean, it's a given the tone of the film and how dopey it is at times. It's pretty hard to ascribe these motivations to the filmmakers. Well, it's but an it's, interesting it's there scene, if though. People want to want to interpret it that way. It's all there. But there's there's also this. That's the scene where he sees the little girls bouncing the ball, and the mom takes them away, and that's the future he'll never have now. Right. You know, is this is this family. There's a lot of symbolism in that scene. And that's really interesting to think of, like, the, uh, you know, the duck and cover, th- you know, thing happening at that uh, with just the sun, because the, the city does get that lighting at times. Yeah, absolutely. And it was cool because when they shot that scene, you know, they didn't uh, they didn't have permits or anything. No, they they, they <laughs> just they just told Edmund O'Brien to just haul ass up Market Street and we'll we'll photograph it and. It's amazing how many of those instances there there were. I mean, even even later, you know, going into the seventies and stuff. I'm sure if you've read uh, William Friedkin's memoir of shooting the chase scene in the French Connection, you know, he, right? He, he didn't get permits for most of that stuff, and uh, and he certainly didn't. He totally conned his way onto the subway train uh, uh-huh, right. because he he bribed an MTA guy who took the money and quit and like left right. the country he just, it was a and he got on the train and was to shoot all this stuff with uh you know the actor marcel bazoffi and the uh, and i love all that stuff like you know none, none of this waiting around for permission like no. we're just gonna go out there and shoot this let's go well and edmund o'brien he's shoving guys out of the way those are like legit those are just people that were in the way he's like yeah. just shoving them out of the way uh, what, what another another shot that struck me, and you know, you mentioned the cinematography. There's this shot where he's on the bus, and you can see the bad guys following in the car through the window, and it got me thinking. Like, this is not a a Hitchcock rear projection thing, you know. This has got to be really shot. It looks too good, you know. If they were on a rear projection, it would right. look terrible. Yeah. Like, right. but how difficult would that have been to get that coordinate you know this bus obviously moving down the street these guys coming out the shot lines up perfectly it's pretty amazing cinematography you you start to see this in hollywood movies right about this time in the late 40s you the the liberation of the camera from the big tripod and and all that stuff and you know once you're out in public shooting uh i think really good cinematographers were very inspired by that so you see a lot of that in uh, like Nick Ray's They Live By Night. The camera is mm. in the car. They're driving around in the car, you know, the bank robbery right. and Gun Crazy, which was made in 1949, released in 50. Same thing. The whole the, the camera is in the car with the bank robbers. And then in this instance, you're talking about on the bus. And and there are numerous other examples of it as well. There There's a great scene on a bus coming across the Bay Bridge in a, a movie called Walk a Crooked Mile, which was fun. I showed that this year. You know, Bob, when I did my uh, the festival up in the Bay Area this earlier this year, it, everything was movies from 1948, right? And I tried to pair like an A picture from 1948 with a B picture because they were all celebrating a 75th anniversary. But the movie that I, I whiffed on, that I should have shown, was this walk a crooked mile because it's about you know it, it was perfect for Oppenheimer because it's about investigating uh spies 
essentially at Los Alamos, but they don't call it that in the film. They call it the, like the Lakeview testing labs or something. But it was exactly about same plot as Oppenheimer. You know, there's can we trust the people who are in here? Blah, blah, blah. And it, it was really interesting. I finally did show it in, in uh, D.C. in October. And it was it was really intriguing for people who had seen Oppenheimer to watch a movie made about the same subject done at the time. It was kind of, kind of fascinating. Well, those people in D.C. really need to see these movies, you know, more than more than anybody else. That's the right audience for it. Speaking of recycling of plots is so this concept is so great. This gets the gimmick of this movie is amazing. Is this the first time that the poison pill, the guy who's who's, who's being murdered is investigating his own murder? Is this like the original idea? Or no, it was actually uh, done. I think the film is actually based on a film made in Germany in the early 1930s that was written and directed, I believe, by Robert Siadmak. Uh, I can't remember the name of the movie right now. But but, but um, there, was, there was an earlier There was an earlier concept. version okay. of it. And of course, there's I want to check it out. A somewhat similar plot is the guy, and I think this was the plot of the Siadmak movie, is that the guy... Hires somebody to kill him. I'm trying to remember the reason. Like if it was some kind of, yeah, right. Isn't it the same same kind of <laughs> premise? You're right. And, and then and then he decides to call it off, but it's like too late. The guy the guy is is coming for him, you know. And he yeah. he has to try to convince the guy that he doesn't want to be killed any longer. <laughs> anyway. The 1931 German film is titled Der Mann der Sienen Morder Sucked. Directed well, by God. Robert Siodmak, who also directed The Killers, and he's Kurt's oh. brother, uh, Kurt, who uh, wrote yeah. The Wolfman and several Universal horror films. Well, oh, God, God bless these filmmakers for taking that obscure German thing and making it into this uh, this uh, <laughs> Roadrunner cartoon. What we were talking about earlier about how audiences would have reacted to this film back in the day, this film is a, a, ahead of its time. In this, so it does something goofy like that wolf whistle, but it's so far ahead of its time in terms of the plot really doesn't matter. Just keep it moving. Right. Just right. keep going. Keep, it's just the, the film is about the momentum of this guy with only, you know, the clock is ticking down. Just keep it moving. One scene after another. Keep it exciting. It's so effective. Like it, they, they, they deliver on their on their goal here. Yeah, like it, it's uh, a very modern kind yeah. of approach. You know, yeah. it's a, it reminds me of something like uh, uh, one of my favorite Scorsese films is After Hours. Right? Oh it's man! Just, it's, it's just like just keep mm -hmm. it going. Like this is the nightmare that won't end. Right? It's one damn thing after another. I love I love those movies. I love me the overnight movies. You know, Go from the nineties is another great one. Yeah, well, you know, it, you know what that that means because there was a there was a kind of a mini genre in the eighties, which is like the horny yuppie gets his comeuppance, right? Like like the <laughs> like something wild and after hours and these movies and and maybe DOA is maybe the precursor of those because if he didn't go horny... out to the bar to get some some strange, then he wouldn't have. Drank <laughs> yes, the well, that's yeah. uh, <laughs> right. <Yes. laughs> It's time once again for the TikTok report with Felina Franklin, where you will learn how. 
This movie is ruining American foreign policy. Take it away, Felina. Haha. <laughs> um, so there's one TikTok, and it is by Stephanie Ed. Um, Stephanie E E D D. Um, she is has thirteen thousand followers and writes uh writes and promotes leftism. Uh noir detective <laughs> mystery and clear case now available. She's into noir, she's into being a leftist, she's into all of the good stuff. So she's ruining US foreign policy, as we see. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes. Great. Um, she has a video on DOA where she basically just explains the plot. It has 379 views and uh, 27 likes, no comments. But TikTok knows about DOA? I feel like TikTok doesn't really know a whole lot about noirs. Wow. You know, they're so TikTokable, these movies, I think. I know. They really... Are you kidding me? The... Uh, the... The first part where he's like, I'd like to report a murder. Who's my own? (gasps) (laughs) And the dialogue is so fast that you can get it into a TikTok, you know? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, TikToks can be 10 minutes nowadays. So, so you, uh, Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) You could put clips of this. I have to, I have to tell you at one point, you know, a while back during the pandemic, when everything was uh, unsettled, and and TCM, let's face it, TCM is constantly faced with the challenge of how do we attract younger viewers to the network. And I've been part of some of these meetings where it's like we need we need to get some influencers to come on TCM. You know, we need to get influencers from social media. And my reaction is, I thought you were paying me to be an influencer, right? I mean. <laughs> But that was my job, right? Well, we've got we've got Felina right here. Um, she knows about marijuana, which is uh, illegal in twenty two states. She's a SAG AFTRA member. Um, she's looking for work. So TCM, if you're if you're listening to this and about to reprimand Eddie Moeller for being on this show, you know, listen to Felina. She's she's got her finger on the pulse of this youth market, this crazy hip youth market, folks. I am twenty three years old, and I know a lot about TikTok. <laughs> okay. And she's trained in improv and all these other things. Yes. So so folks uh okay, Eddie. God, uh, Bob, you are just selling me today. <laughs> <laughs> uh you know, I think you know, you've been on strike for a while and I, I you yeah. know, you could use And any, I need money really bad. You're not so. getting any money from this fucking show and uh no. got to try to do something for these people that are on this crazy <laughs> quest with me. But Eddie, uh you've got a a cocktail pairing with DOA before we get into our weed pairings. Uh, give us the cocktail that you should drink with this uh, luminescent poison pill here. Uh, it, se- it seemed to me that the only proper cocktail for this movie was uh, the last word, which is very fitting in terms of Frank Bigelow's fate. And uh, perfect, perfect. Talking about it now is a, <laughs> is a little sad um, because the guy who revived the last word uh, was a bartender named Murray Stenson, who was largely considered to be one of the greatest bartenders in America. And he just, he just passed away a few months ago. And in fact, he, he, he died not long after the noir bar book came out and, and Murray was a pal and he would come to the noir city festival in Seattle. But anyway, back in the day, he, 
He's the one who rediscovered the last word, which I believe was originally created at the Detroit Athletic Club. It's so interesting that so many classic cocktails were created at the Detroit Athletic Club. <laughs> what, are, what are they doing at the Detroit Athletic Club, right? <laughs> that they're just drinking all the time. Uh, but it's, um, it's gin. It's equal parts gin, lime juice, green chartreuse, and maraschino liqueur. And it's uh, it's fantastic. It's a very very tasty cocktail. But the not only I chose it to go with this movie, not only because of its name, the last word, which is like when Bigelow says, you know, who was murdered? I was. You know, it's like the last word. Uh, it looks like it's radioactive. It's bright green. I mean, when, when you when you, <laughs> it's not really it's not really green. It has a well. Oh. There it is. It has a green. Like a celadon, if you want to chartreuse, it it's chartreuse. It, it's, it's the chartreuse. chartreuse that makes it that way, but it's uh, and right. the lime juice a little bit. But I just imagined, like I, I think I say in the book, if you want to be really cheeky, just serve this in a in a beaker. You know, right. uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because it, it looks just like what Frank is comes out of the restroom yeah. with in his hand, right? Absolutely, perf perfect pairing, Eddie. It is my favorite gin drink. Uh, I discovered it at Absinthe on Hayes Valley in San Francisco, and today I'm going to go get one at the Dresden over there on uh, fabulous, Los so fabulous. You you yeah. have inspired me. This is it is <laughs> what a, what a per but really I, I imagine watching DOA sipping on a last word. Just th this is why you got to get this book, people. This is amazing, right? <laughs> yes, it is. It is one of the many cocktails paired with noir movies in noir bar cocktails inspired by the world of film noir. By our guest, Eddie Muller. So please get it wherever you get books, but preferably an independent bookseller. Yes, please. Yes, yes please. Keep those things going. Uh, Corey, what weed would you smoke with? DOA? As I said, as a location nerd, this was, uh, and especially a LA and San Francisco guy, this was heaven for me, this movie. I just want to give a shout out to some of the other locations they showed. During that scene, Greg, that you mentioned on the bus ride, they showed the Gaylord Apartments where my favorite bar, the HMS Bounty, is. Clifton's Cafeteria gets a beautiful yes. shout-out in this movie. So it was, it, was, it was awesome. This is a very California movie. So um, I've been smoking these, uh, these Dome Pen disposable vapes, D-O-M-P-E-N, Dome Pen, and particularly I enjoyed the California Citrus strain flavor for DOA. Uh, California Citrus is a bright and tangy sativa dominant strain that is perfect for discreet daytime use. And uh, it gives you a little bit of an energetic buzz, which this movie, um, you don't want to be in the couch indica for this movie. You want to be a little buzzy and have your brain energetic. So I liked this California Citrus Dome Pen. Maybe it'll help you understand the movie. It didn't help me. It did not help me at all. But I really, I really dug that jazz. Yeah. Yeah. Felina. Again, as as everyone knows, I'm balling on a budget, so I get my big old bag of shake um, that I love. Uh, this one is lemon pastries. It is um, 17.99% THC, and it is a, I believe it's like a indica dominant hybrid. It's yummy. I love the taste of this. It It's so, like... It's like fruity. It's it's delicious. It's citrusy. The oh, the terpenes are limonene, terpolamine, and beta beta mycerine. Yeah, <laughs> nice. California <laughs> citrus terpenes. Greg, did did some mysterious stranger in Ukiah give you a bag of random weed for DOA? 
Well, okay, so I have to I have to talk about this a little bit because I <laughs> did both movies this week um it, back to back. And I started off with our B picture. And what I did was is I I I started with this um stizzy uh, purple haze. Oh, I vaped wow. a ton of that. And then and is that a right wax rig? That's a wax. Yes, it is an okay. indica uh concentrate. I vaped a ton of that and then I ate one of these lost farm cannabis infused live live resin things. So as I was watching our B picture and coming down from that, the edible started kicking in and got me super paranoid for DOA, which was just perfect. Just the perfect paranoid feeling to, you know, everybody was out to get me and I was sitting there you know, my 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 mother was there sitting there and she, by the way, if you want to talk about audience's reactions, she thought that the slide whistle was, quote, so stupid. <laughs> she <laughs> so stupid. And meanwhile, I was just sitting there breaking a sweat. So, you know, uh, it was uh, that's 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 my weed recommendation for both movies. It's good for a double feature to have one kind of cross over the other. Oh wow, wow. That's that's great. We should have your mother on the show next season. Oh she's my God. watching all these yes. damned movies Please. with you. We should just have Becky on. Three generations. She yeah. doesn't she doesn't like any of the movies we watch on this show. She she's hates uh, it. <laughs> what, what what does she watch? What well, what's her taste? Tell Eddie Jeopardy. tell Eddie what she watched last week. So so well what she watches normally are like British mysteries like Vera and you know tv miss like they're good you know doc they're really martin. good doc martin she type she loves the british mysteries but for some reason she just can't get down with uh like old hollywood which is funny well what did we watch last time she it was uh um, we watched house on haunted hill and blood feast so i mean she's she's Greg not, she, hated blood she hated blood feast <laughs> but she's she was the only one of that uh, only one of us that we know eddie you might know somebody else that has actually seen the house on haunted hill in emerjo wow with that's impressive the, which with the thing coming out and yeah. she was like 14 or something and what you know it terrified her uh the the rubber skeleton coming out right um she maintains it was not inflatable by the way bob which oh, okay uh, you know, well, Ernest Ernest Dickerson <laughs> talked about seeing the Tingler in his conversation with Eddie on the TCM cruise, and he said they didn't have the seats wired for the vibrations or the shocks. But when the lights go out in the movie theater scene, before Vincent Price says "scream, scream," like the lights, they actually turned all the lights out in the theater, and then the lights came back on, and there was one of the ushers was lying there on the ground, and the <laughs> other ushers carried him out, and then they started running the film oh. again. With Vincent oh, Price telling God. the audience the Tingler is loose in the theater. So we got another William Castle eyewitness report. I'm William Castle, and I feel obligated to warn you about the next attraction you will see at this theater. <laughs> that was pretty great. That uh, You've got to appreciate that staff for buying in. Absolutely. Yeah, I know, really the cool. hustle. <laughs> I hope William Castle slipped him a saw buck for that yeah. because they, they put in the effort. And and also yeah, Ernest Dickerson on the cruise diverging here a bit. Um, he was he talked a lot about like Roger Corman movies and and 
you know, really a lot of old movies for young stoners that, you know, he was really talking about uh, science fiction. Uh-huh. And, you know, I mean, I've got the Harryhausen posters here. He was name checking Harryhausen and everything. And that's a cinematographer of Do the Right Thing and mm-hmm. uh, Malcolm X. That's amazing. I think, I think Ernest is a little bit of a monster kid, to be honest. With oh, you. yeah. He's, right. a, he's a he's a Forey Ackerman guy. You know, yeah, I mean, totally. he's definitely. I famous. just I just watched his uh, his Tales from the Crypt movie the other day. Yeah. <laughs> Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight. Demon Knight, yeah. That he dra- oh. I mean, it was such a goofy comic book movie, you know. And it's, it's so it's the, good. It's the, it's the good Tales from the Crypt movie. He made yeah. the good one, yeah. It's the best movie He's in, such a legend. I, I think maybe I'm going out on a ledge here in that Criterion 90s horror si- series. I kept telling people this is the best movie, and they just wouldn't believe me, I think, because of the branding. I'm like, don't watch the Carpenter one. The car- or if you watch the Carpenter one if you have to. But in the mouth of madness is not really a good John Carpenter movie. Like, but watch if you only watch one of those things, make it that. And Dick Miller's got such a big part. Dick Miller's in it, and and William Sadler is one of my favorites. Oh know? yeah, he, that guy. That guy can sell anything. He's yes. such an incredibly great actor that he's making this absurdly stupid movie, right? And yet. Every time he delivers a line, you completely believe it, you know? One of Jada Pinkett's first big roles, CCH Pounder. Just, I mean, he talked about the cast Dickerson about casting and and really that was Billy Zane is great in it. I think it's his best performance. I I mean, (laughs) he's amazing in that movie. He's clearly having a good time. Oh yeah. As everybody who watches the film is. I'm so happy. We got a William Sadler shout out on this episode. He's the greatest, (laughs) the best. But, uh, for me, I, I recommend motor breath, which is leafly.com's November highlight. Uh, according to Leafly, Motor nice. Breath smells like diesel, chemicals, and pepper. It's made by Pisces Genetics from SVV, SFV, OG, and ChemDog. A lot of users on Leafly say they use it to treat anxiety as well as stress and depression, which seems a little contradictory considering it's called Motor Breath, but it's a strain that fits the mood and pace of DOA and will send you running up and down Market Street like Edmund O'Brien. <laughs> And if the 26% THC is too much for you, DOA is only 80 minutes long, 83 minutes long. But if you still can't take it, you can go on the next TCM cruise, get off at the Pharmacia in Cozumel and get some Mexican Xanax and maybe that'll help. You could always do that. DOA is currently streaming on Amazon Prime, Fandor, MGM+, Crackle, Tubi, Pluto, and the Roku channel. Plus, you could find it on archive.org and YouTube, but you should avoid the colorized versions that are floating around on some of these platforms. Let's get this straight. I didn't kill her. I suppose I'm screwier than a bedbug because I've been convinced I kill her, so help me. I guess that's because I hated her, so that widget face did something to me. He had a kind of a, a rhythm, a chord, a, a dance of death chord. Bang! It always set me off. How true that is. We artists suffer so. The fellow with the knife, is that one of the characters you play on the stage? You're pretty smart. You put your finger almost on it. That's where the trouble begins with that stage character. It's a dance called the Spectre of the Rose. There is barely a movie from the golden age of Hollywood that does not bear screenwriter Ben Hecht's fingerprints. From the original Scarface to Hitchcock's Notorious and even uncredited work on Gone with the Wind. Eddie will fill you in later on Hecht's filmography, but his IMDb page is so sprawling that it must take up a good chunk of Amazon's cloud servers. 
1946, Hecht freed himself from studio boss meddling by writing, producing, and directing our next film. And with this freedom, every pretentious thought Hecht ever had about art, sex, and death came spilling out onto the screen in this bizarre ballet noir. Young ballerina Heidi marries the love of her life, ballet superstar Andre Sanin, even though it's pretty obvious that Sanin just murdered his previous wife. Will Heidi survive as the couple does repeat performances of the dance of death that activates Sanin's psychotic impulses, or are they doomed by fate? With Viola Essen and Ivan Kirov as the young couple, Judith Anderson, whom we just saw in Pursued with Robert Mitchum, in another one of her dark matriarch roles as the proprietress of the dance studio where most of the film takes place, and Lionel Stander, that's Max from Heart to Heart, as a hanger-on who spouts morbid poetry. This is Spectre of the Rose. Now, before we get to you, Eddie, I, I want to ask our younger stoners about it. And uh, Felina, your thoughts on Spectre of the Rose. First, first of all, it was a little bit hard to follow for me. But it is so sick. <laughs> I love it. I loved it so much. This is for my girly pops, my gays, my femmes, my non-binary baddies. If you are in a ballet core coquette era, or a, like a Lana Del Rey, I know he'll kill me, but I still love him era, this movie is for you. This movie is for you. This is so Pussy Boots the Sleigh House Down. It is so... I... Oh, my God. If you, like, ha make yourself a, like cute little cup of tea smoke a cute joint with like lavender roses like put put the works in there put on a cute little outfit watch this movie you will feel so iconic it's i love it's so great yeah i had a lot of fun watching this obviously i thought it was i don't know it was just it was just it was it was cool <laughs> Wow. Yeah, Felina, you said it all. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I was I was going to say, like, in this uh, genre full of uh, glass-jawed uh, tough guys and hard-luck dames in heteronormative uh, relationships, it's so good to see something so gay in the yeah. world of Thor. <laughs> just just yeah. so gay. And uh, I've never heard so many iconic lines in a movie before. The, I mean, I have a list here of... Of, of them that they're... Oh, God, I made a list, <laughs> too. too. I, I, mean, I think we all did, yeah. Yep. I mean, I yeah. what flaw, what a script. I would just like to read this this screenplay. Like, a, what, who who writes like this? Who talks well, like ben, this? Ben Hecht does. Ben Hecht does, yeah. And, and <laughs> whatever influence he may have been under, I'm not entirely sure, but when he, well... Maybe I, some we last hear, words. We want to hear what Greg has to say about this as well, and... I'll I'll come sweep up at the okay. end, but I want come to sweep up all the mess. I'm yeah. so sorry. Yeah, really, really, it. really quickly. I just I I totally forgot to say. I was so inspired that I drew a <laughs> bunch of the characters. Oh wow! Very good. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, look I, at that. You know, <laughs> I just really I was so inspired. This was him doing 
the, the, dance. the dance. Oh yeah. This is yeah. Him doing those little the little jumpies. Oh, and this was our main our main bitch. Yeah. We, love, we love her. I don't think they ever made another movie. The two of them, Kirov yeah. and uh, and mm-hmm. Essen. I don't think they made another movie after this. Well, they're they're dancers, like yeah. first, right? And yep. and obviously they needed to have that skill. But this is yeah, this movie. I have I did not know this movie at all. I've never heard of it. I had so much fun with it. It, you know, it was one of those ones where, like I told you, I got really vaped out of my mind and I started watching and I wasn't sure if I could deal with the energy of Michael Chekhov for a full feature. But I quickly got in line because really this is some of the best dialogue. And I know Ben Hecht has written a ton of scripts, but this has got to be one of his just outrageous, most the funniest, most quotable script. And in fact, I don't think I've ever heard like this kind of tone of where it feels like it's it's very satirical in 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 kind of poking holes at like where fine art meets brutal commerce. Right. Like where, you know, there's all this talk of the pretensions of fine art, but the guy is a shyster. He's like robbing Peter to pay Paul. He's full of shit. And 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 the incredible Lionel Stander. I mean, what I I I felt like I I knew him from cartoons, and he actually I looked him up, and he does. He's got that that voice, you know, Lionel Stander. Yeah, incredible, amazing. Which ain't easy, because when they met, it was murder. Incredible. He said at one point, "This place smells like a herring barrel." Oh, I know. So good. A wilted carnation in the Broadway buttonhole. And this is the sad little factory where the dancing toys are made. Now, I, 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 I know there's a big there's a big list of movies with the best dialogue, right? There's a huge list where you could put the sweet smell of success on there with like all these great, great dialogue films. But I don't think I've heard anything that sounded quite like this Mm-mm. tone, with the possible exception of Roger Ebert's screenwriting work with uh, Russ Meyer. Beyond the you Valley know? of the Dolls, yeah. Right. It kind of reminded me of that dialogue a bit, where it's like so pretentious, and it's poking holes at pretension, and it's poking holes at fine art, but at the same time, it's like kind of achieving fine art. <laughs> At, and, at times, and a, little preten- a little pretentious too, right? Very pretentious, yeah. <laughs> but it's also it it earns the it earns it. You know, like it's actually is very extremely creative. It is it is saying something. You know, it's not just uh, bad dialogue, bad bad art. It's great art. I wonder if Ebert was um, had seen this film or was inspired by it at all. Like, or he, I, I'm sure he knew about Ben Hecht, but. Uh, you know, I don't know if he ever saw this film or, or ever reviewed it. Uh, I, I have no idea, but I do yeah. know that. Um, well, here's the thing. One, the only yeah. thing I'm going to I'll back up and say in your intro, Ben Hecht had actually been making movies like this since like 1934. Oh, right? wow. So he he came to Hollywood, you know, famously, he came to Hollywood at the behest of Herman Mankiewicz. Uh, whose famous line in a letter to him was, you know, uh, come out here, there are millions to be made and your only competition is idiots. And 
he started writing, you know, Underworld and Scarface and all this stuff. With he, he was an expert. He was a Chicago newspaper man, and crime was sort of his thing. But he was very uh, literary minded and wanted to write highbrow uh, stuff. And he was very dissatisfied with the kind of work he was doing in Hollywood. He thought he had to dumb everything down. And then he started making his own movies in New York with a cameraman named Lee Garms. And like the, there's a picture he did with Claude Rains called crime without passion. That is absolutely fantastic. Wow. It's, I'd call it a proto noir and the same thing. And when, when Ben Heck did his movies on his own, he was completely unfettered. I mean, he just let it rip. And in terms of the language, the dialogue, he, Lee Garms did all kinds of things with the camera that just would never have been attempted mm. in a regular Hollywood movie. And and they made a series of films like this, Crime Without Passion, The Scoundrel, uh, Angels Over Broadway, a couple other things. And then Spectre of the Rose is like the culmination of all of that, because there's nothing like it. There, there is no other movie that sounds like it or feels like it. It's, it's insane. It's like art gone completely off the rails, and it's wonderful. It's a beautiful looking movie. It, oh, it just, some of the it, shots it doesn't apply. No, the ordinary rules do not apply to this film, and people can. I mean, somebody can take it totally seriously and and find it somewhat profound, and the person sitting is going to laugh their ass off and think I've never heard anything this funny in my entire life. And both of those are kind of valid. <laughs> and you could do that at the same time. Like I did, yeah. you know, I, yeah. I, I was, I was definitely uh, moved by some of that two fisted poetry, you know, like I, that's what I think is so cool about it is that you've got this incredible vocabulary language, florid, you know, dialogue, and yet there's this kind of dime store philosophy, this hard bitten. I mean, and and in the character of Lionel Gans, I mean, he's delivering poetry with he sounds like a longshoreman, you know, like <laughs> he, it, it, it's 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 a really great combo there. You know, it goes like peanut butter and jelly. Well, it's mm -hmm. like it's a very low budget affair too right like it's, mm -hmm. it's yes. like this republic uh films they didn't they didn't have a lot of money for movies right Bob they did not and <laughs> and i think ben heck kind of liked it that way i mean he had to work out to do these movies he had to do them completely outside the normal system right i mean republic distributed the film but i i don't know how much money they actually put up to make the film whether heck because mm -hmm. heck was at one point i mean he was the highest paid screenwriter in hollywood Whoa. And so he had money. If he wanted to use his own money to make this film, I'm sure he could have, you know. A anyway, I mean, it's just, it it's a pretty fascinating film, really. And it's hard, very, very hard to find. So where did where did you actually find it? There is a VHS it? rip of it on YouTube. So cover your ears. We watched a VHS. It's the only way to find it. So yeah. it's really the it is on archive too. About Republic, just uh, you know, every studio has an identity back then. 
that's a lot more profound than the corporations of today. And Republic made movies for the hicks and the sticks. That's what the the head of Republic said. <laughs> a lot of John Wayne movies, a lot of John Wayne World War II propaganda movies like The Fighting Seabees, Back to Baton and the Flying Tigers, all these kinds of movies, and a lot of westerns. We, John Wayne was like their biggest frequent star in the 40s. So that's yeah. what they were making. But they also would occasionally foot the bill or at least tacitly support something arty. They wanted, like Columbia did this with the Frank Capra movies. They made like three Stooges shorts, but they'd have Frank Capra to try to get an Oscar. Uh, Republic would have some arty movie that they hope would get critical acclaim. Like they also uh, distributed Orson Welles version of Macbeth around this time. Yeah. And the same, the same year that are two years after Spectre of the Rose, they did uh, Frank Borzaghi's Moonrise, which is a just fantastic film it's like Borzaghi's last masterpiece definitely kind of an it, it's a noir but it's kind of an art film and uh yeah that exactly what you're talking about Bob okay everybody wrote quotes down so I'm gonna say uh Felina then Corey and then me uh, uh give, just give us a quote from the movie that you decided to write down I'm no good I'm just some muscles and uh, that can dance and the rest of me is rubbish broken glass and rubbish <laughs> <laughs> Corey, do you have one for us? I have lots. Let me pick a good one. I'd like to pick you up right here now and hold you till you were tattooed on me. Whoa, how romantic yeah. is that? Yeah. How romantic is that? Uh, she, <laughs> then she says, uh, what is it? Hug me with your eyes. Oh, I yeah. Am. Yeah. Harder. Uh, yeah. Oh, I know. I know. Uh, That's the one that blo that blows oh, up an audience. No. It does. You, I figured. I figured. I can't, wait, I can't wait to see yeah. this with an audience someday, hopefully. Oh, God. It. Yeah. You know, I love how the cop is interrogating Sanin, but he lets all these weird art people just hang out and, and interject during it. And uh, Polakoff has a great line during the interrogation where he says, what husband did you ever hear of who did not want to kill his wife with an axe, with a knife? This is the sort of thing that is all part of marriage. <laughs> I mean, but Polakoff is just, uh, I love the bit with Madame Lassif where I knew a woman once in Austria who was a vampire, drank human blood to keep herself alive. She oh, was yeah. captured in the forest with a little boy, 13. She had him in a sack. And then Polakoff says, Mrs. Callahan is not a vampire. She's a lover of art. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's fun. That's a very yeah. funny line. It's oh, fun yeah. I, That's a choice. It's right? hilarious. Yeah. yeah. This movie is absolutely hysterical. Another line, Felina, before we get to the true crime uh, angle on this movie. I'm not some guy in a bed. I'm a dancer. I dance. I dance. <laughs> <laughs> I first discovered this movie writing the SF Weekly true crime column, and I was always combing through old articles, sometimes 20. 30 year old articles that, you know, the San Francisco Chronicle would just run these lists of unsolved murders in the city. And those were like gold for me because a lot of times they were forgotten crimes. I didn't always want to do Zodiac killer and all the kind of big crimes. Everybody knows. I was always looking for something that was bizarre and interesting and forgotten. This crime is in the murders that made us. So I'm going to just read the first paragraph if that's okay with everybody. And I call the uh, little article here, the little bit here, Specter of the Rose. The four boys ran down Market Street, past a row of grand movie palaces on Sunday, September 8th, 1946. 
Two guys from Milwaukee, a since-forgotten Warner Brothers comedy romp, was playing at the Warfield, while Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman were foiling a Nazi plot in Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious at the RKO Golden Gate on Taylor Street. The Marquis of the Esquire boasted double shocker with showings of Devil Bat's Daughter and House of Horrors running from 9 a.m. through 1 a.m. So it just ran for hours. That's a grindhouse. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They don't have that in San Francisco anymore. But when the kids got to the Paramount, they caught a whiff of something even more ghastly than the zero budget horrors at the Esquire. They followed their noses to the alleyway at the side of the theater at Jones Street, where they found a pair of large cardboard egg crates. The boys kicked at the crates until they broke open and rancid human remains spilled out onto the ground. Aye, aye, aye. So when police inspected the boxes, they found these boxes weren't actually egg crates, but they were boxes used by the flower industry at the flower market that's still in San Francisco. And they were able to piece together, I don't really know how, because the head and hands were removed. Anything that could identify the corpse weren't included. It was just the limbs and the torso. But the uh, person who was murdered was Ramon B. Lopez, described by the examiner as a wealthy carnation grower. Lopez grew his flowers at a San Leandro nursery and sold them from a stall at the San Francisco flower market on 5th Street. He'd been missing since he made the rounds in North Beach on Wednesday, September 4th. Lopez's wife, she ID'd him. And I talked to Al Nalbandian, who is the florist that I've name-checked on the show, and he was a character actor in San Francisco movies since the 50s. He's in the lineup with Eli Wallach and several others. And uh, Francis thief. Ford, yeah, once a thief. Uh, I asked, you know, Al was like in his 90s. He was the last guy who could possibly know this guy. And I asked him. And he said people called him Spanny because he was Spanish. But then Al went into very Al mode and said, he grew good flowers, Bob, but he'd never come down on his price. So <laughs> the guy's dismembered in an alleyway. And, and, and you know, Al's price. still complaining about it. But wait, him. I'm still waiting. What's the, what's the Specter of the Rose connection? Okay, but at the Paramount, that was the movie playing. Specter oh, of the Rose. Okay. Okay. So even Herb Kane mentions it in his column. Like, was the killer like, did he have a sense of humor? Did he see, you know, I mean, I don't know how long Specter of the Rose had been running. Did he see it? Is wow. this like a joke? But he kills this flower grower, this flower seller. Specter of the Rose. And puts him behind the theater wow. where Specter of the Rose is playing. Oh. And in the first scene, Inspector of the Rose, Polakoff has a carnation on his on his lapel there so wow. I mean, he walks in rosie pointed that out to me she's like oh you know because i found it i was like what the hell is this movie like the flower grower is dismembered behind the theater showing this did the killer see this movie before he did it or did he just see the marquee or you know it's it had to be some kind of sick joke but the movie is just full of all that weird dialogue. You just really, like, yeah. what's going on? They never solved the crime. They found uh, Lopez's head and hands kind of at Bayshore area later on one of those beaches out there, wow. you know, kind wow. of Mission Bay type place. Awesome. Like 18 years later, they found his, uh, his head. So Damn. Yeah. Wow. Okay. If I ever show Specter of the Rose on TCM, I'm going to remember that story. You bet. <laughs> <laughs> That is that is too much. The music in this movie really struck me, and uh, like like another movie we saw in here, uh, the Red Shoes, which I feel a lot of similarity with this movie. Um, this I've shown those as a double bill. Oh, really? Well, this predates the it, right? I showed that as a double two years, bill. Yeah. two years ahead. Two years, of amazing. Um, I, this this has a play within a play in it. The Specter of the Rose, the ballet, which was a real ballet. 
but they replaced the music with the composer's music in this movie, George Anhill, who I, I found the music quite beautiful. I looked him up. I fell in the wormhole of him. This dude was really cool. Oh, uh, yeah. He, he was a student of Stravinsky. He was hanging out with Eric Satie and James Joyce. And Fran- He's from New Jersey. He's from Trenton, New Jersey. And then Jean Cocteau was the guy that like got him his first gig and live gig playing music and stuff. So this guy is awesome. He was making super avant-garde, crazy noise, punk rock, like banging on the pianos, atonal music, like totally, Mm -hmm. totally Stravinsky influenced. And by the time he did this, you know, he was like calming down doing movie scores and stuff. But they called him the (laughs) bad boy of music. That was what all the press called him was the bad boy music in the 20s. So um, I read an article with him in the 50s called the bad boy at 53 or something like that and yeah. he's like he's like he's yeah, like i have i have that book i have the book here on, on it's the cool i mean george yeah. anhill this yeah. guy this guy was really cool quite quite a beautiful co- uh, composer a jersey guy hung out with all the cool people he worked with ben hecht on a couple other movies but he, he this quote i read in the article he's like yeah, my music actually saves these these flops. Like I'm, oh, my, that's what he said. He said damn. my he said these movies suck, and I my music is the shit that puts it together, pulls it together. But anyway, I I, I think this composer is cool. Um, I looked, I wanted to hear more of his music. He has these really cool uh, violin concertos that you could listen to. There, it's like like I said, it's like the violinist is like fucking banging on the strings. It's awesome. I, so I think he also out. did the the score for um, the sniper. Which was uh, as another San Francisco noir film. I think I think he did the score for that as well. It's a serial killer movie, and it predates the real serial killers of San Francisco, like the Zodiac Killer, and has similarities to crimes that happen later Correct. in the city. When, so, when it was like the first. Con- it was like what? It was 1952. It was one of the first contemporary serial killer movies because most most movies made at that time that were about that were period films like jack the ripper stories and things like right. that bluebeard uh, the, uh yeah but yeah but this was the modern idea of somebody taking a high-powered rifle and shooting people anonymously and at random well mm-hmm. apparently at random of course there has to be some underlying thing there but it's a it's a very interesting film and uh Antio did the did the music for it Guys, I we got to wind up at least for me because I gotta I gotta get out of here in like five minutes. So. Well, just uh, give us give us your your drink pairing and then. Uh, well, I the drink I'm embarrassed to say I can't even remember the recipe at the moment, but it was have one it. that we I actually it. created just for this book because I knew I wanted to do a uh, one of the motivations for doing this book in addition to just having this cool idea of pairing cocktails and movies is I wanted to draw attention to some deserving but very neglected films. Inspector of the Rose was one of them. And so I, I created this cocktail because there's so many weird ingredients in the film. It was like a challenge to like, how do, how do I make these these disparate ingredients work together? How do they play together, you know? So I knew that I wanted to have a Four Roses bourbon as the base in the cocktail and I needed something really weird and bizarre and very European. So I used uh, Fernet Branca as part of the mix, which is, you know, a little bit goes a long way in a cocktail. You know, if you want, if you're drinking it just as a digestif or something, that's one thing. But as soon as you put Fernet in a cocktail with something else, it it tends to overpower it sort of the way Lionel Stander sort of (laughs) overpowers everything else in this movie, you know? 
Yeah, this, this just drink sounds amazing. The Spectre of the Rose, it's it's like it's like a it's like a, a, a Boulevardier with a little bit of Fernet. It's perfect for this movie. Good, good, good. I'm glad I'm glad you think that. It was a it was a there, there's something else that goes in that drink that I'm spacing it's out. An, on you, right you, now. It's, it's your Amaro. You got your Amaro. Oh, the Amaro. Um, yeah, Amaro that's what Nardini. You the yeah. Amaro Nardini goes in there. Yes. Just to kind of pull it together, you know. Excellent choice. Amazing book, Eddie. This is amazing. Such such a pleasure, man. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. it, it's great fun. I, I'm happy to come back at some point and and talk some more because it's great. It's great fun just hanging out with you guys. And this was a. A good way to start this day. I don't know if you tell people like when you're doing this, but it was, uh, <laughs> yes, it's daytime, as you can see from my window shining in here. Eddie, one one last <laughs> thing before you go. Uh, you've got this event coming up in Vallejo and you've got the Noir City, Oakland. So can you just really quickly tell us? Thank about you. That? Thank you for the plug. I don't know when this is going to be. It'll it'll be line. up the, right after the Monday after Thanksgiving. So that's OK, perfect. Will... Yes, I am doing. um in Vallejo at the Empress Theater on December 15th, we're going to show the movie Pitfall. And that's the end of the evening. But I'm going to be in a long, long form conversation with Nick Rossi, the fabulous jazz musician. Uh, we're just going to, there'll be a few surprises. It's going to be really fun. There'll be a book signing. I'll be signing Noir Bar and probably the Kitty Farrell book as well and whatever else people want me to sign except a blank check. <laughs> and that'll be fun. And then on the 20th of December, I'm doing Noir City Christmas at the Grand Lake Theater. I'm, I will be showing a film from 1949 called Cover Up, which is set during Christmas with Dennis O'Keefe and William Bendix. And um, there'll be some surprises there. That's when we will announce the program for the Noir City Festival in January, coming up, uh, Noir City 21, our 21st Whoa. year of doing this. And uh, it, it's an exciting program. And that festival will be January 19th to the 28th uh, at the Grand Lake Theater in Oakland. So uh, I hope everybody has a chance to come out and, uh, and, and see some of these obscurities that I'm going to put up on the screen. I, I can't wait. You'll see me there in Oakland and Vallejo. Rosie and I got tickets for the Vallejo show. And I want to shout out to Alibi Bookshop, which is a big supporter of my book, The Murders That Made Us, and also is a big supporter of your book. Um, we both have Face Out. Uh, we're both Face Out there, which is a big deal to independent publishers you and bet, writers. You bet. But the book again, Noir Bar, cocktails inspired by the world of film noir. Get it at Alibi Bookshop. Get it and get Eddie to sign it and get it at any independent bookstore or wherever you get books. If Just get the damn book. Thanks again, Eddie. Um, thanks for being on. Sorry if we kept you too long. No, it's it's quite all right. It was thank great you, Eddie. Fun. It's amazing. Thank you so much. We'll thank talk you to you so guys much. again soon. Okay, I'm checking out. Bye, bye, Eddie. Okay, what kind of weed, Greg? What kind of weed did you enjoy? Oh, you already said so. I kind of already said. Yeah, but what was that it, edible? Again? It was purple haze, and the edible is Lost Farm Tangerine. The uh, strain is Sunset Sherbet. Get the Lost Farm, Corey. What did you enjoy for? I recommend again not smoking something too stony for this one. So I, I, I what I smoked was a strain called Jealousy. Um, there wasn't much jealousy Whoa. in the movie, but um, I guess there's a little jealousy in the movie. But it's a hybrid weed strain made by crossing sherbet and gelato. It's known for its balancing effects. People say that it has a funky and earthy smell. Its highlights are a giggly, talk talkative, and relaxed 
uh, effect. I think get the girls together, get the himbos together. After your weekly viewing of RuPaul's Drag Race, throw this on it when you have some oh some drinks, God. rightfully, and something like that. I so. absolutely agree. Okay, wait. Yes, I was gonna say you need to get all of the gays in one room, all of your favorite gay people, and watch this movie and smoke so much weed. I agree. That's the that's the way to do it. And yeah. and drink and drink some some uh, Boulevardiers yes. with Fernet in them. Dude. Oh my God! Yeah, what Dude. A fun. Oh, what a fun night. Corey, Dude. Um, this is the first time in old movies for young stoners history. <gasps> no, did we get the same strain? Yeah, jealousy. Oh, my God. <laughs> Leafly's strain of the year for 2023. That's, so. why, that's why I got it, because oh. it was Leafly's strain of the year, and it was yeah, on sale. Yeah, yeah. It makes you feel mentally relaxed and physically energetic, according to Leafly. So from wow. Seed Amazing. Junkie Genetics. So yeah, we wow. chose the same one for this. Looks one. like all you listeners out there got to find the jealousy weed first. Yeah, I mean it's road. a movie about a guy who kills his wives, <laughs> kills one wife, wants to kill the other wife. He hears voices. What do you go with jealousy? The reason he's killing his wives is because that man is gay. That's right. <laughs> that is You're why right. he's killing them. You're right. Hey, is the dancing in this movie good? I can't tell. I think so. Yeah. Okay, I had. I thought it was good. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, dude, that, that dude was awesome jumping up so fucking high. The, fi the final yeah. dance, which no spoilers, but everyone stick around for the final dance. That thing is that that is bitching. That is awesome. Yeah, yeah. for real. Felina, what 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 did what did you eat for Spectre of the Rose? I had hiatus l'orange. La la uh, orange. Ooh, those look good. They are. <laughs> They're really yummy. They're sour gummies. So the outside is really sour. I have another one that's lime lemon. And those are so sour, but these are actually kind of perfect tasting. And only one gets me high. I'm surprised. Wow. So, How many milligrams? How, How much? Just 10 milligrams. Wow. Wow. Just 10. And I'm usually uh, somebody who goes crazy. So yeah, this is like very good. What does it say? Very good for daytime, energizing, joyful, creative. It's a sativa. It's yummy. And uh, the packaging is Gorgina. Nice. Okay. Spectre of the Rose is currently available on YouTube with a VHS rip. It's pretty watchable. And archive.org, and you could rent it for $1.99 on Prime. So, hey, everybody, this is our big season finale. So, I, you know, it's been kind of a hard year for a lot of people. A couple of us have lost our dads and a granddad, and it's just been a weird year, but I think we did some pretty good shows. And, you know, it's nice to know that we always have this show to do together and we always have cannabis and old movies. Mm -hmm. I think the, a lot of that really got us through Hell yeah. um, through what's been a pretty well rough said. year, pretty rough year. Well said, Bob. So any, any plans for the holidays, you guys? No, I'm, I'm not looking forward to the holidays this year. I'm planning <laughs> on not decorating and just ignoring it if possible. Hey, you know, we aren't going to do a holiday special this year, but now that the SAG after strike is finally over, there will be a Barbie under your Christmas tree in December. So definitely subscribe <laughs> to yes. this podcast if you haven't already. So you won't miss the lost Barbie episode. Yeah. Tell your friends, <laughs> tell yeah, your friends, yeah. everyone subscribe, um, write us. We, uh, we want to hear from you. We want some listener feedback. If you think we should be watching some movies, let us know. 
And I just thank you all for listening. I've gotten so much positive, wonderful feedback from this show, and and people seem to like it. And uh, let's keep it going. And follow us on Instagram. Follow, follow us on Instagram. Instagram. Well, you know what? Here's the thing: if you go to the website that Rosie built for us, you can just click. Which is e- so cute. You can click everything and just follow us from there. And please do. And that's how you contact us. That's how you follow us. For the holidays, I will be on tour uh, during the Christmas season with Elvez, the Mexican Elvis. I'll be opening for him and working as his cape man, like James Brown. Oh, beautiful. We'll be in Joshua Tree on the 15th of December. We'll be in San Francisco, bottom of the hill, the 20th. We'll be in L.A. at the Lodge Room, the 22nd, and San Diego, the Casbah, the 23rd. So come out and say hi. That's great. Yeah, definitely see Chalky the Funk Wizard. He may or may not be Corey Sklar, co-host and co-founder of Old Movies for Young Stoners. And hey, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. And please join us for our 20, 2024 season three. We've got some incredible guests coming. Corey's been working overtime on guest bookings and just some great, great people coming up on the show next year. Ernest Borgnine, uh, Kim Novak. No, just kidding. Yeah, Kim Novak's <laughs> going to be on the show. And, uh, you know, you can stick that in your pipe and smoke it on Old Movies. Four. Young Stoners. Just Bigelow and me, and baby makes three.